0: And we're moving through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're going to be in Ezra 7, and then part of 8, and then we're going to jump over and look at a a section of Nehemiah chapter 8, primarily in Ezra 7. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, and as you do, uh, you know, I feel feel sorry, sorry, Rob, about this uh, illustration, but, you know, Disney's been in the news a lot lately, and so there's been some kind of bad publici- publicity, so I wasn't surprised this past week when in my social media feed, someone sent over this kind of shocked face, and it's, I can't believe this. Uh, I think all of my, ch- something like all of my childhood is a scam, and there was a video. I was like, wow, I wonder, wonder what happened. Now, in just a second, we're going to show the video, and I just want you to, notice if you notice any parallels or patterns, but this was the shocking video. I'm sorry, I did a cut joke. Well, uh, you you can stop it. You get the the gist. And there was about four or five other scenes from The Jungle Book that were patterned in exact mirrors from other scenes in other Disney movies. And I kind of failed to see the audacity or what caused someone to question their entire childhood. Because to me, you know, in the days of like hand-drawn animation, that just kind of makes sense. Why would you, you know, use things over and over? So a lot of patterns. See, they're just, they are just they speak with different patterns. And whether, you know, that's that's shocking that Disney does it, it made me think, well, that's how the Bible works. And one of the things that the Bible does is it tells us stories. And then it will take the, the narrative arc and it will um, just give you riffs off of that same pattern. And so one of the main patterns running through all of Scripture is the Exodus pattern. So there's mul- many, many, many stories are intentional. Uh, Riffing off of that pattern. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a threefold pattern where the Lord first starts to stir in people's hearts. And then they commit to act and do something. And then something happens where they battle deep discouragement. The the disappointment comes. The frustration comes. And they have to find a way to fight through it. And the pattern for fighting through the discouragement is with uh, devotion to God, a commitment to God. Devotion and delight. That's kind of the one-two punch to fight discouragement. Devotion to God's word and then delight in the Lord. And we see these patterns are going to be repeated all throughout uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So this week and next week, we're going to look at that that pattern, that one-two punch. Devoted to God's word and then delighting in the Lord. And in Ezra chapter 7, we're coming on to the second stage. So there's one movement that the first move movement is about 60 to 70 years of building the temple and then the second phase the second movement is when Ezra returns and he's going to build a people on the foundation of the word to unite people around the word. This community that they're trying to build back has to be built upon the word. He's going to reform and refashion the people. And so this is the foundation. And one of the things you'll see this pattern running all through scripture. You can see it here. You can see it uh, in the original, in the exodus of redemption and God brings them out of Egypt and they come out through the sacrificial blood of the lamb. And then they have to come into the land and get a established on the Word. And we see in the New Testament where Paul says that the foundation of this house is the foundation of the prophets and the apostles' teaching. And once Jesus dies, and he's the great altar, the great sacrifice, and then rises from the dead, and the Spirit comes, and the first thing, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so we see this pattern over and over. So we come to Ezra chapter 7, and this is a, a fractured community, and they've been without the Word for generations. And the goal that Ezra has is to bring people in line with the word. So it's interesting going through the story, you know, Ezra is, is really the main character, the title character, the books named after him, but he doesn't even come on the scene till chapter seven. And so we're first and finally introduced to him in seven. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look this morning, all right, let's look at the man and his mission. So who was he and what did God commission him to do and we'll move through chapter seven. And then we're going to take us just a, a quick glance in Nehemiah eight as we see the man at work. So the, the man and his mission, and then the man uh, at work. So Ezra. So let's start off looking at Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of, and then now, and th- through all these books, there's a whole cycle of people's names. I'm not going to submit myself to the potential public humiliation of trying to pronounce those. So each time, we're just, gonna, we're just gonna skip over them. But there's a whole cycle of Ezra's family that you can see. And the one we will key in on is it ends with the son of Aaron, uh, the chief priest. So his, his lineage is noble, it's regal, it's exalted. It goes all the way directly back to Aaron, uh, the original uh, high priest. And then in verse 6, uh, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him. All that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. So first one through six, we got to get introduced to the man and his mission. So he's introduced. Now there's a little phrase there that it's amazing how often the Bible does this. It'll just give you a little line. Now after this, and it just kind of makes you think, all right, the next day, the next week, you can look up at the end of chapter six, they've gathered and they finally, after 20 years have built the temple. You know, it was hard to get it done. They lagged. There was up there was downs, but they finally had the temple built. And then God had to send Haggai and had to send Zechariah to help them motivate them. Zerubbabel and Joshua had to keep the people going. And, and they got it. And then there's this great celebration at the end of chapter 6. So they celebrate with joy. They uh, offer the Passover feast. And then now after this. Now this is about 50 to 60 years later that this happens. It's a lot of lag time. 58 years later and uh, you move from the joy of the temple building and in that time frame you know a lot can happen in 58 years and their hearts have grown cold the encouragement and the energy and the zest that they had to kind of build God's house has fizzled out they become an apathetic community they've lost their sense of distinctiveness in the land and their mission for why God put them there you know, when I hear the preaching that God sends, uh, the last book, at least in, the, in our uh, Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi comes in that time, and you can read that book as he's trying to kind of motivate the people in this in-between time. And he has to call them to repentance because of the priesthood that was established, they've become corrupt the worship of God's people at this temple that they were celebrating has become routine. They've become selfish. They've neglected the worship and the ties. He calls them to repent because divorce has become widespread and the marriages are in disarray. And then we'll see in a couple of weeks about marrying foreign uh, women. And then justice is an issue because the poor are being exploited. And so all of this is happening in that in-between time. And then here, God is going to raise up another generation and someone else to send. And so he raises up Ezra and begins to stir in his heart and stir in the king's heart to send him back. So his genealogy, some of his background, the important thing to notice through that list of names is just notice that it's an exalted. He comes from a regal family, an exalted family, uh, tracing all the way back to Aaron himself. In Jewish history, he's the second only to Moses as far as uh, kind of that, that lineage in that um, sense of, uh, that, that regal sense of the glory of the family. And he, more than any other person probably in Israel's history, is going to put his stamp on the people as people committed to God's word, committed to the book, who are going to love the law of the Lord. So uh, exalted genealogy. But then notice in verse 6 a couple key things. This is going to be an anthem that runs all throughout this from here on from Ezra all the way to into nehemiah in the hebrew bible It's just one book. It's called ezra just one book And this now becomes one of the anthems for the hand of the lord is upon him And it says the lord granted him all that he asked for the king So keep that in your back of mind. We're about to see what he's going to ask for But then his expertise he was skilled in the law of moses Understanding it applying it how to give your life to it. He was skilled in the law. Five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. For us, that was his his expertise. And then let's go on down to verse 10. So skip down to verse 10. It talks about how he gathers a people. He's going to spend four months getting back. There's a lot of drama to this story that we'll get to later, but they uh, skip over it now. And then in verse 9, it says, For the good hand of his God was upon him. And then in verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it and teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So his expertise is that he was skilled in the law, and then the way he got to uh, that skill level is because of his commitments. Notice how it's set up, the structure. He set his heart, his first commitment, probably as a child, was to set his heart on studying uh, the the law of the Lord. And what's interesting is he's in in essence, at the, the, the heart of the Persian Empire. And at that time, that is the intellectual capital of the world. And what has captured his heart and what he wants to study is the, the law of the Lord, the law of his people, the word. And he sets his heart on studying that. That fascinating, you know, he, that's how he used his captivity was to dedicate himself to knowing and understanding uh, the law of the Lord. He used his that time. He was, there's always opportunities to grow and study. I was thinking about this, I was reading uh, Life of Thomas Aquinas, one of the great um, theologians in church history. And one of the fascinating things about his life is when he was a young man, he had dedicated himself to uh, become a uh, to be a monk and to study uh, and to teach. And he came from a very illustrious regal family in Italy. And this wasn't quite the a good enough career path for his family. And so his two older brothers actually kidnapped him and imprisoned him for three years, and some of the things that they did, well, uh, he's, I can't really say now, because it's mixed company, but some of the things they did to him is just remarkable, so if you ever think, you know, your family has issues, you can look at Thomas Aquinas, and you know, it could be worse, and so they kidnapped him, uh, imprisoned him for three years, and then he used that time to memorize almost the entirety of the Bible, So his captivity wasn't wasted. That's similar to what Ezra does. He's in captivity, but he's dedicated, and he's going to learn and love the word. And then notice the cycle. He commits to studying it, to do it, and then teach it. So notice that order is essential. You love it, you study it, then you do it, and then teach it. And then moving on from verse 10, we kind of get his task. We see what he's committed uh, to do. And we get this copy of the letter from King Artaxerxes. And it's just a remarkable letter. So in many ways, kind of this letter you have to read between the lines. Because everything that the king grants to him are things that Ezra has specifically asked for. So just kind of walk through and look at what what were priorities to Ezra and what does he seek. Start in verse 11. This is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. So Artaxerxes knows he's an expert in this field, the commandments of the Lord. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. And you were sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And so he's going to give him space and he's going to allow him to go through all the kingdom and, and to announce his project and to generate space and, and have people uh, to motivate uh, Uh, to come. In the back of my mind, I was thinking about how we began this church and the first thing you got to do in church planning, you try and go around and you're trying to get the word out and motivate uh, people to come. It's not a bad uh, situation when the king of the entire world gives you free passage to go anywhere you want to try and motivate to come along. But notice how the king, there's this continued reference of according to the law of your God. This is what you're committed to, according to the law which is in your hand. So he knows he has in his hand the law, of his God. And then in verse 15 notice that he's going to supply the cost of the sacrifices to worship at the temple. And also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So not only is he going to go help him raise the manpower, he He's going to help fund it and he's given gold and silver to pay for the sacrifices that have been, uh, they've been derelict in doing these things. And then in 17 with this money, then you shall with all diligence by bulls and rams and lambs and their, for their grain offering and their drink offering, and you shall alter, offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. You know, it's amazing. Like how did Artaxerxes know those were the things needed for the worship of God's people? I mean, he'd never been there. I don't think he's ever studied the worship of God's people in the temple. I mean, he knows because Ezra told him and asked him for these things. And then he freely gives the things that are going to build up the house. I say, whatever seems good to you and your brothers do with the rest of all the silver and gold that you may do according to the will of your God. So you have his word, you follow his will. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide for it out of the king's treasury. It's amazing. I'm going to open up the, the storehouse and just whatever you need, you go there. He's going to provide the temple vessels and then starts in 21, any of the extra supplies. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much? No limit to the salt. And basically, this is like the king, and so think about what that would be like. In essence, imagine if every you know bank in the country is federally owned and operated, and then the president just says, you have free reign to go into any bank you want and ask for however much you need at the moment up to this limit. It's remarkable. He's going to provide all of the extra supplies whatever is decreed by the God of heaven let it be done for the full be done in full for the house of the God of heaven lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So he wants to build this house. And then notice verse 24. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of this God. So they not only are going to get funded from the royal treasury, they're going to be exempt from paying taxes. It's a pretty remarkable deal that he sets up for them. And you, Ezra, now here comes the commission, according to the wisdom of your God that Is in your hand, and remember what's in his hand? It's the word. He has the scroll, the book. The word is in your hand. So, according to the wisdom that is in your hand, you appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all of the people in the province beyond the river and all such as know the laws of your God. So your first task is to go back into the community and appoint community leaders. And the requirement for their leadership is that they know the law of your God. They know his word. So you appoint people to lead the community who know the law. And then he says, uh, and those who don't know them, you're going to teach them. So your responsibility is put people in place who know it. If they don't know it, you teach them. And then whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. I love this addendum because Xerxes is saying, all right, I'm giving you the authority to shape this whole community on the law of your God. And if they don't obey you, this is what you should do to them. This is how I would handle it the situation if it was me, so I give you free reign to do it, but your job is to build this people upon God's word. It's a remarkable thing that's coming from a pagan king. And then notice how Ezra responds in verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers who put such a thing As this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered the leading men from Israel to go up with me So his task is to form this people and to build them upon the word. They must be devoted to the word. That's how they're going to have stability. That's how they're going to have structure. That's how they're going to battle through discouragement and disappointment and have peace. And then in 8, it talks about his crew that he's going to gather together. I find it fascinating that his strategy in verse 1 as he goes to the heads of the father's households and goes after uh, those men. It's pretty remarkable. And it's interesting you go through the names and compare them to the names of the people 70 years later who uh, left. And a lot of them were for divided households. So these are people who, they had people in their household who left and they stayed back. And then you put together the numbers and through 14, it gets about 1,500 heads of the households who go back. Remember in this world there's no such thing as a nuclear family, every family is large. So you get the head of the household with 1500s, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40,000 people that he gathers and then they return. So that's his mission to build this people, to gather them and to build them upon the Word. But what gets repeated? Verse 6, verse 9, verse 27, this is his secret, that the good hand of the Lord is upon him. And such a beautiful picture of in Ezra's hand is the word of the Lord, and in God's hand is Ezra. So he's holding him as he holds the word. And this is the essential step for the community. They have to be built upon the word. So that's the man and his mission. Now, quickly, let's flip over to Nehemiah chapter 8, and let's just kind of watch him as he goes to work. So here you have Ezra, Nehemiah. Nehemiah's come back. Uh, He's trying to build the wall. This is about 13 years later. So Ezra has been there for at least 13 years, trying to build up uh, the community upon the word. He's training teachers. He's setting people in place. And then they've just completed the wall. So starting in Nehemiah chapter 8, then all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So this is a term used all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. When they corporately gather as it says, as one man in the ESV, or you could try the older translation is they gathered with one accord, they had gathered. This is the word for assembly gatherings. what we translate as church, the gathering. They all came together as one, and then they come to the water gate. So, Liz, pull up the first picture. So, here's a picture of. Jerusalem, once Nehemiah finishes the wall, and then the water gate is that one, the, uh, this one here, so they gather here, it gets set up on top, and then all the people are out in this area. So you can keep that up as we, as we kind of get a visual of what's, what's happening there. Probably at least 50,000, but that's a low number, probably 200,000 people are all gathered. And Ezra's on the platform up on top of the gate projecting out. So we stood before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. So this is a key theme running all throughout. Who could understand? So everybody could understand all men, women, children. They're all there in mass, probably 200,000 of them and they did it on the first day of the 7th month. Some of the details hard to kind of tell when you're putting the timeline it's either about 1 month after they finished the wall or just a couple days. So they don't spend a lot of time. The wall has just been finished. Now it's the time to gather the people and have them recommit themselves to the law of the Lord. And we read from it facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for that purpose. And beside him stood and now there's 13 of his crew that are standing up on the gate with him. Uh, Seven on one side, six on the other. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and as he opened it all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, and here's another cycle of 13 more of his friends. Now, they're not up on the platform. They're dispersed out among the people. And the way at least I think what's happening, or here, I'll, I'll finish reading it and tell you what I think is happening. And they, uh, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their place. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and then they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So you have these two dynamics. You have one group up on the platform. I think they're projecting out they're reading, they're they're the readers, they read it, and they have another group immersed in amongst the people, and then they're taking and they're explaining it so they can understand. So you always have this dynamic back and forth of explanation that comes after exposition or giving. There's the reading of the word and then explaining it. And I love this phrase, they gave the sense so that people could understand it. That's a helpful reminder about what my job is, is to give the sense so people can understand it. And you have this back and forth, and they were probably spread out all throughout the thing. Because if you have 200,000 people, and they have 13 of them, they probably were in little groups of maybe 1 to two, 3,000 people. So they have this great reading, and then they have the explanation that's coming. And then notice in verse 9 just how the people responded. And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and the scribes and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. So they're hearing it. They're internalizing it. They're being convicted of their own sin. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people and said, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to make for great rejoicing. Because they understood the words that were declared to them. So they understand the word, they hear it, it convicts them. But then they come with comfort and the whole rest of the week, each day, they come and they hear the word of the Lord. And you can see these two things, the way they battle discouragement, they build their life as they build their life on the foundation of this teaching. And then they engage with it in such a way that both convicts, but then culminates in joy and celebration. So as we wrap up how do you what do you need as you look at this you know the first thing is what is your heart devoted to what has it been dedicated to one of the amazing things running throughout this whole section is what the Lord stirs in people's hearts and he stirs in Ezra's heart to commit to the word and he stirs in the heart of the king to give and to support them so what is what is your heart devoted to I was reading this week a wonderful Prayer and reminded myself of a prayer from Thomas Aquinas, so I'm going to read this prayer and just let it sink in and ask the Lord to make it true of you about a heart that's dedicated to the Lord. It says, "Give me, O Lord, a steadfast heart which no unworthy affection can drag downwards. Give me, O Lord, an unconquered heart which no sorrow can wear out. Give me, O Lord, an upright heart which no unworthy purpose may pull me aside. Bestow on me also, O Lord, understanding to know you, the diligence to seek you, the wisdom to find you, and the faithfulness to fully embrace you. So Lord, we ask that these things would be true of us. We thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of people like Ezra who have dedicated their lives to understand it and teach it. And we pray that for our church specifically, and then all of your churches in general, that they would be built and dedicated, uh, built upon the foundation of your word. We pray for our children like Chloe and the children everywhere in between, that we would hear the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, when the rains come and the wind blows and the storms the storms come, that you can build your life on his word, and it's a rock that they won't be shaken. So we ask that you help us to be like this. We thank you for the gift of your son, the gift of your word, and the gift of communion that we celebrate each week. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.